Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I'm certain the person involved that day would have no recollection of the event. It's curious to me that all these years later, I do. I was fresh out of college. I was an intern pastor. I was pastoring a two-church district. We had an attendance of maybe 50 on a high day, 60 each week, both churches added together. But they were 50 or 60 truly beautiful people. It happened during that time that the local conference, the Association of Churches, had an official meeting, and we all had to come. We were required to attend. We were there with our conference's leadership and with other pastors. And it was sometime at one of the breaks that something needed to be done. I don't know, move some tables, move some chairs, take out the garbage, something like that. And nobody moved to do it. It was then that a conference leader, not the president, but a conference leader spoke up. Now, honestly, I'd always viewed him kind of as a blowhard, a little bit too full of himself, but who knows? Maybe he thought the same thing about me. He spoke up. He kind of laughed derisively. He called the attention of the other leaders, and he pointed at me and said, hey, let's have the intern do it. He can do it. You get up and do it. So I did. I got up and I did it, and I think two or three others then stood up and helped. And then the incident was gone. I'm almost certain not a single other soul that day would remember. It's curious that I still remember that. I suspect that as some memory experts tell us, those experiences that we have that are emotional, engrave themselves into our minds, and we don't forget them. It's just not a good feeling to, to be last, to be least, to be less than. It's not a good feeling to feel insignificant. Now, you may remember that there was an entire comic strip made up of people, at least some of which, felt insignificant, less than. It's about 20 years ago when the cartoonist retired, retired because he got some bad news about his health that would ultimately, ultimately lead to his demise. His name was Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz, some of you know him well, others of you weren't around at that time, but you still see the cartoon images here and there that he drew. That Peanuts comic strip. Well, about the time he retired and then a few months later when he passed away, there was a lot of conversation about Charles Schultz. A lot of people writing news stories and programs about him. And I, I pick up one here from Time Magazine, a piece written by James Ponowozik. Here's what Ponowozik has to say about Charles Schultz and about the comic strip that he penned. With that theme of loving losers, even Charlie Brown's baseball idol Joe Slobotnik was the worst player in the pros, came the corollary, losing at love. 
Every major character has an unrequited love. Charlie Brown and the little red-haired girl, Lucy and Schroeder, Linus and Miss Othmar, even Snoopy got dumped at the altar. Happiness may be a warm puppy, but as Schultz once said, happiness is not very funny. Schultz infused the strips with his lifelong feelings of depression and insecurity. He had his heart broken by a real-life red-haired girl, and they showed Camus-like how one could feel lonely even in a crowd. Many of his panels have two characters outside at night staring at a field of stars. Let's go inside and watch television, Charlie Brown says in one. I'm beginning to feel insignificant. It's that feeling of being less than, last, least. It's not a great feeling for most of us. And yet I realize that you may have had an experience like that this week. might have been noticed by no one else. But somehow it got to you, seared itself into you. Left you thinking, I don't like being last place. I don't like being on the back row. What about all those people on the front row? What about the ones for whom life is going so well? What about the winners? Why am I on the losing end? The truth is, life is often a battle. Battle between winners and losers. Battle between front row and back row. A battle between those who succeed and those who fail. Between the victors and the losers. When you have that experience of feeling less than, feeling least, you don't forget it all that quickly. So as you're thinking about that, as you're feeling that, I want to welcome you to a new series. A new series about an Old Testament character, an Old Testament personality by the name of Jacob. We're going to spend some weeks climbing Jacob's ladder. We're going to journey together in that process. Now, Jacob is a complex character. Jacob has a large part to play in the story, especially as it begins in Genesis. Maybe a little bit of background or context to Genesis might help in locating exactly where he fits into the narrative flow of God's people. So, scholars say Genesis really is about two fours. First four, it's about four great events, about creation, fall, flood, and nations, nations being the Tower of Babel. Creation, fall, flood, and nations. And then it's about four great personalities, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If you can remember those two great fours, you essentially have the outline of the book of Genesis. So as you can see in the second, four great fours, number three, four great personalities, number three, Jacob. But Jacob has an outsized presence in Genesis. Specifically, his story is told in Genesis 25 to 36. But because his son Joseph's story is told next, and because Jacob tends to weave his way through that story and even reappear for an entire chapter and other verses, you can actually say the presence of Jacob hovers over half of Genesis. Genesis 25 to 50, you will find Jacob not far away. Now, that's surprising to me. Surprising. Because Jacob is a complex character. Jacob was concerned about the glory of God, and Jacob was concerned about the glory of Jacob. 
Jacob wanted to be sure that God got his, and Jacob wanted to be sure that Jacob got his. <laughs> Jacob had mixed motives and at times compromised character. Jacob was enigmatic at times, complex, just like a lot of us. And so we begin today, Jacob, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. And we begin in Genesis 25. So if you take your Bibles or your tablets or phones, Genesis 25, today's New International Version, we're going to join the story of Genesis at a moment when a man is praying. A would-be father is begging God that his wife would get pregnant. It's not the first time that's happened in Genesis, but this man is particularly in earnest about it. He will pray for almost 20 years, pleading for his wife to become pregnant. Well, it finally happens, and it's right around that time that we join the story. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first, came out, first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So after almost 20 years of praying, the answer comes, I'm pregnant. It must have been a day of great joy, of great excitement in the household of Isaac and Rebekah. And yet, the excitement and the joy would probably have been fairly short-lived because pretty soon, Rebekah feels something going on inside of her. This can't be normal. I mean, I know they kick and I know they move. What is happening within me? I want to uh, read the way that Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase the message, renders Genesis 25, verse 22. He renders it this way, but the children tumbled and kicked inside her so much that she said, if this is the way it's going to be, why go on living? This is bad. Now, you, you ask yourself the question, why would she be concerned about going on living? It's, it's a few months, but some of you, I understand, have had complicated pregnancies and maybe can relate to some of that. Or maybe she's even saying, if this is what's happening while they're still in me, what in the world is the future going to be? Now, don't think she's overreacting. I want to read you the words of one commentary as it depicts what happens here using the language, the Hebrew, in which it is written. Listen to what this commentary says. In Rebekah's womb, the babies jostled each other. 
Jostle, hitratsats, is a strong term meaning crushing each other. The fierce struggling of these fetuses caused Rebecca agony, both physical and emotional. In exasperation, she asked herself why this was happening to her. The wording of the Hebrew, which is an unintelligible utterance cast as a question, conveys her anguish. I'm in anguish here. What's going on inside of me? What in the world is it with these two babies? They're smashing each other, jostled inside of her. In fact, the language of the Hebrew, when it says she went to inquire of the Lord, tells us that she indeed went. She traveled somewhere. Did she travel to a seer, to an altar, to somebody who had a special ability to communicate with God? The text doesn't say where. It just says it got so bad she had to go talk to somebody. What is going on? And that somebody says, you think it's two babies fighting within you. Truth is, it's two nations at war with each other. Sibling rivalry? <laughs> I suppose. But this is intense. Some of you know sibling rivalry. We won't call names. But some of you have had that experience. Some of you are going through that experience right now. Some of you went through that experience growing up. I, I want to read you four brief snapshots of sibling rivalry. One sibling says, this is the first one, my little brother put peanut butter in my ears while we were sleeping on a fishing boat offshore. Peanut butter in my ears with no powerful water stream to be able to remove it. But I got back at him. I filled a squirt gun with water and cayenne pepper and got him right in the face. <laughs> Have mercy. Sibling rivalry? What about this, the second one? Younger sibling. I have two brothers 10 years older than me. When I was young, for months, they taught me the alphabet this way. A, B, C, D, R, F, K. <laughs> I had to re be reprogrammed in kindergarten. <laughs> Older brothers. The third one. Here's the sibling that says, My younger brother has always been terrified of bugs. Unfortunately for him, I've always been fascinated with them. I even had my own bug collection. I decided it would be a brilliant idea to put a lot of cockroaches underneath his blankets before he went to bed one night. I'm pretty sure his scream woke up the whole neighborhood. He still refuses to let me anywhere near his room. It's amazing that we actually survived to adulthood. Fourth one, this one, my, my sister and I were down in my grandparents' basement. I was seven, she was five. We were listening to records. I put on Winnie the Pooh, that record, and made her memorize the words. Each time she messed up... <laughs> Each time she messed up, I pulled out a hair and made her start over. To this day, she hates Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Siblings. I had a friend come up to me after first service and said, I know these two kids, brother and sister. When they were younger, they got into who remembered earliest in their family. Well, I remember back when I was one. Well, I remember back when, you know, that kind of game going back and back. 
I remember when mom was pregnant. Well, I remember when I was an egg. <laughs> Each one having to one-up the other. Sibling rivalry. And here's Rebecca, holding on to her abdomen, feeling like it's being split apart. How to respond to that? What to do? Now, what's curious is that from even before birth, you have this sense, as the word came to her, of these two nations battling within her, each trying to be stronger than the other. One of them will be the firstborn, the firstborn in the world of that day, destined to sit on the front row. The next one, somewhere back there, maybe the back row. First one is going to be the strongest. The next one, well, you're not. You're less than. You're least. You're last. It was the destiny. But somehow between these two, the younger would not allow that to be the destiny. He fought. And I can just picture Rebecca yearning for the day of delivery. Will it ever come? And it does. Allow me to read to you once again from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message, Genesis 25, 24 to 26, as he describes the day of birth. When her time to give birth came, sure enough, there were twins in her womb. The first came out reddish, as if snugly wrapped in a hairy blanket, and they named him Esau. Hairy. His brother followed, his fist clutched tight to Esau's heel. They named him Jacob. Heel. Harry and heel. There are two names you haven't considered. You might want to think about if you're pregnant. Harry. I mean, that's bad enough. I'm not talking about Harry, H-A-R-R-Y, as in Harry Truman or Harry Connick Jr., not that kind of Harry. I'm talking about H-A-I-R-Y, as in, whoa, that kid's got a lot of hair. <laughs> looks, like he's wearing a, uh, uh, looks like he's wearing a fur coat. That's no coat. Oh, wow. Harry, that's the first one. But as bad as that is, heel, as in the heel of my foot. That's the next one. Heal. What actually does, does Jacob's name mean? I want to read you from Erdman's Bible Dictionary. It gives a bit of an insight into the word plays in the Hebrew and what was going on with this name. The name is linked to Hebrew words meaning to seize at the heel, hence to beguile or to overreach or supplant. Thus, the name can mean he takes the heel or he supplants. Now, I realize even though many commentaries and scriptures use that term supplant, we don't use that, that word often in our day and time. So you may say, I'm not sure what that means. So from the dictionary, here's the dictionary definition. To supplant is to take the place of another as through force, scheming, strategy, or the like. I'm going to get mine and I'm going to get it any way I need to. Now, understand, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Genesis, names meant something. 
Names often were predictive of destiny. Names picked out a quality or a characteristic and emphasized it, suggesting that that quality or characteristic would have to do with a person's character in future life. So here, Rebecca has the Word of God that the older will serve the younger. And sure enough, when they come out, Heal. I'm grabbing on. I'm not letting go. You think you're going to the front row and me be in the back? You think you're going to win and I'm going to lose? Let me just tell you right now, I'm going to be nipping at your heels all through life until I get what's mine from the very beginning. Now, the parents must have watched with great interest what would happen with these boys. The next scene, this is the first real scene other than the birth into Jacob and Esau's life and experience. This next scene gives us an insight into the kind of life they would live together. Back to Genesis 25, this time verse 27. It says this, The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for a wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he's also called Edom, which also means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. It appears that they're about 18 to 20 years old at this point in time. Old enough so that the family dynamics are becoming clear. Dad has a favorite. Mom has a favorite. Esau is a man of the wild, of the open spaces, of the wide open skies, of the hunt and the chase, and of cooking up that which he had hunted down. And because his father loves the taste of what he makes, Esau becomes dad's favorite. Jacob, as one person put it, Jacob loved to explore the great indoors. And he hung around the house, around the tents, hung around mom. Hung around the, the fire and the stove and the cooking. That was Jacob. And he became mom's favorite. Quite a family. By destiny, by the order and mores of the day, Esau was slated for the front row, Jacob for the back row. Esau the winner, Jacob the also ran. Greater than, less than. But Jacob is not prepared to let that happen. Now, we have to assume it's an assumption, but I think a fair one, based on what happens in the text. We have to assume that Rachel would have told Jacob, her favorite, the story. Just hang in there, son. God has great things to you. When you all were tearing me in half, when, you, when I was pregnant with you, the word came, the divine word came. The older will serve the younger. Just hold on. Just trust. But heel grabber, 
He had no time for such. He was ever watchful and ever ready, and the day comes. The day comes when Esau comes, traipsing in from the hunt. I don't know. Did he catch something? Did, was it unsuccessful? He had nothing, catch something, but didn't have time to cook it. He came in famished. And as he approached the homestead, he could sense, he could smell the aroma wafting his way. It was there, wooing him in, luring him in. Oh, that smells good. It's like you, high school student, academy student. You got up early in the morning, you went to class, went to school, got there about 7 or a little after, spent the whole day in school, long day, you did get some time for lunch, but it's a busy long day, school's over, band practice, band practice is over, football practice, finally you're home 7, 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. You are famished. And you come in the front door, ah, oh, Yes, mom is cooking your favorite dish. You drop everything in the entryway and run to the kitchen, just following your nose to that aroma, to the genesis of that savor. Mom, I love you, mom. Get away. It's not ready yet. Oh, mom, please, please. I'm a, get away. Let God have it. Mom, please, I'm dying here. I'm dying over here. Do you understand that? Not right now. Mom, anything. I'll do anything. I'll give you anything. Not right. Anything? Really? Yeah, anything, Mom. Just name it. It's yours. Just give me some of that. All right. Your phone. <laughs> My phone. Yes, if you want some of this, just, just give me your phone. Okay, Mom, here's your phone. No, 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 no. I'm not saying just hand it to me right now. Here, I want you to sign on the dotted line. This now belongs to me. All right, Mom, here, I'll sign it. Just give me some of that food. That's Esau. He comes to Jacob, starving, famished, Give me some. Now, interestingly enough, Hebrew scholars say that in the original, it's much more abrupt than that. He says to Jacob, let me swallow some of that. Just out. Let me swallow some of that. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of a Labrador we used to have. Blonde lab. He didn't chew most of the time. He'd get really hungry, and, he'd just, and it was gone. And it was like, what are you doing? I remember coming home from Olive Garden, bringing two of those... Breads, I don't know, breadsticks. I thought maybe Maverick would like this. I gave them to him, and both of them, and boop, boop, gone. And I thought, what did you do? Well, it didn't agree with his stomach, and he <clears throat> refunded them. <laughs> and when he did, they were whole. No bite marks on them. Just gone. That's the image here of Esau. Let me swallow some of that. And Jacob's waiting. No time to wait for what God's doing over here. This is my chance. He lives by that credo. He who hesitates is lost. This is my chance. No hesitation. Wade straight into it. The most precious thing. All right, happy to give you some. But there's a price. What's the price? I'll pay it anything. The birthright. The birthright. 
Now, don't confuse the birthright with the blessing. We'll come to the blessing. That's going to be another issue in this story. The fatherly blessing. That's not this. The birthright had to do with, we would say, the finances, the property, the possessions, the belongings, the inheritance of the father. So here's how it worked. The father, when it was time to dole out the inheritance, if he had two sons, he divided up his inheritance equally in three ways. If he had three sons, he divided up his inheritance equally in four ways. If he had four sons, he divided up his inheritance equally in five ways. And then that extra share went straight to the firstborn. First row, winner, destined to be on top, you get it. And that's what Jacob's asking for. Doesn't this smell good, Esau? Ah, I've seasoned it just right. Let me swallow some of that. The birthright. Well, what good is the birthright if I'm dead? I'm dying over here. So fine, you got it. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not just saying it and then taking it back. Swear to me. We'll make this legally binding. Swear to me. And he swears. And the transaction is done. Jacob is saying, I don't want to be any second pew, third pew, last row. No, no, no. That's not for me. Front row. Winner. Top of the ladder. God said it, and I'm going to get it. I'm going to make sure I get it. Esau. Now, it's interesting. It, it, it's as though, we go back to Genesis 25, it's as though Esau is the original caveman. I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse 34, there are five verbs in rapid succession. Verse 34, then Jacob gave, gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And then listen, he ate and drank, got up and left, despised his birthright. Five verbs right in succession. He ate, he drank, he belched. Well, that's not in the text, but the author would have put it there if he'd have thought of it. Then he wiped the back of, with the back of his hand, wiped his mouth, then he got up, then he left. Then he despised the birthright. The whole image is of someone being totally driven by his instincts, his bodily needs. Give it to me. I want it. It's a picture that the narrator paints as though to ask the reader the question, you really think this person is deserving of the birthright? He despised it. But Jacob certainly doesn't get off scot-free. He's maneuvering, conniving, scheming, circling, waiting for the right chance, and when he sees it, pounce. Got it. The birthright. No waiting for him. No waiting on God. Which is unfortunate because Jacob and Esau are not firsts 
here in Genesis. Genesis is weaving a narrative about a developing people of God. First of all, they're certainly not the first two brothers to have challenges, nor will they be the last. The names Cain and Abel ring a bell, or Isaac and Ishmael, or Joseph and his brothers. There were others where the sibling rivalry was intense. But there's something else going on. Remember back to the divine word that Rebecca received. That divine word was... One will be strong, one will be weak. The stronger, the older, will serve the weaker, the younger. In other words, things are going to be turned upside down to the way society does things, to the way human beings function. This people that I'm creating, they're going to function in a different way. And it's a lesson that God teaches from the very inception of the Genesis account. Abel is preferred over Cain. And when Abel is killed, then Seth, the even younger, is still preferred over Cain. Isaac is preferred over Ishmael. (coughs) The younger Rachel is preferred over the older Leah. Joseph is preferred over his older brothers. Joseph's kids, his sons. Manasseh is preferred over Ephraim. All the way through the account, things are being turned upside down, turned upside down, turned upside down. God is saying something. Watch this. Pay attention, he says, because I'm giving you an insight into the kind of people I'm creating. It's not going to be a people where might makes right. It's not going to be a people where people are given their privilege and they adhere themselves to it and lord it over everyone else. That's not the kind of people I'm calling. And the story continues. The centuries, the millennia pass. A baby cries out in Bethlehem who will grow up to announce a new kingdom. Now it's not just a people, it's actually a kingdom called the kingdom of God. And that baby will tell us what that kingdom is like. When he grows up, he will say things like, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. The first will be last and the last first. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness with the world. Your servants will be your leaders, and your leaders must be your servants. Over and again, he keeps talking about the fact that this is going to be turned upside down, turned on its head. That's the nature of my kingdom. In fact, when he establishes the kingdom, his throne is a cross and his crown is a thorn. And that instrument of the most inhumane and humiliating torture will become the emblem, the symbol of the most sublime and divine kind of love imaginable. Because it will be from that cross that he will preach the realities of the kingdom of God, that your greatest weapon is surrender and your greatest armament is love. And if you watch the narrative... That's not new down here at Calvary. All the way back here. A doubled over pregnant mother saying, what's going on in my womb? 
God says, I'll tell you what's going on. I'm creating a people that will be unlike your society, your culture, your world, because it will be upside down. Because the truth is, in the ways of God, He cares for the last and the least. He cares for them whether they're just embarrassed to be treated that way in front of others or whether they truly feel like the dregs of society. Those are the ways of God. He cares for the last. He cares for the least. So, if your name is Esau, Beware, because the older will serve the younger, the stronger will serve the weaker. But if your name is Jacob, relax, wait. It's all good, because God has a place for you on the front row. Gracious God, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you because every one of us has felt little, last, lost, lonely. Every one of us has felt demeaned and diminished, insignificant. And yet, Lord, you say to us, at those moments, I have a heart for you. I will care for you. And Lord, let us be wise enough to recognize that in those moments and in those places where we're at the top rung, that your kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Let us live that way. In the name of Jesus, amen.